morning again. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to grab one under one of the chairs in front of you. You can find 2 Corinthians 8 on page 939. This morning we're wrapping up our fall vision campaign called Growing in Grace, Faithful Stewardship. If we look back over the last few weeks, in uh, week number one, we talked about gospel foundations that fuel our vision and mission. And then in week number two, we started talking about what we believe God is calling us to build on top of that foundation, not just a facility at 21 Harristown Road, but a renewed biblical community, and to borrow the Apostle Paul's language from Ephesians 2, that is joined together and rising to become a holy temple in the Lord. We looked in the Old Testament to the prophet Haggai, who was urging the people of Israel after their return from exile to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem as their priority. And then we turned last Sunday to John chapter 4 in the Gospels to look at the life and ministry of Jesus, who calls us not only to build a temple, but to dig a well, to bring the gospel to people where they are, to become a gathering place in the neighborhood where uh, folks can find Jesus, find life, see light. And this morning, we end with a topic that uh, the church would always love to avoid but just can't because in Jesus' ministry recorded for us in the Gospels, He spoke about money and possessions more than any other topic except for heaven and hell. Our king knew that this topic was as accurate of a barometer as any other of our spiritual lives. So we turn to 2 Corinthians to see radical generosity being lived out. Listen carefully. These are God's words, starting in chapter 8, verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had had earlier made a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here's my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved, while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, as it is written, 
The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Chapter 9, verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, You're the Father who provides for our every need. You are the Father who blesses us with blessing that we cannot even fully comprehend. You meet our every need. You change our wants into that which You want for us that is better. So, Father, incline the uh, hearts of Your children towards You. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. We start with what Paul starts with at the beginning of chapter 8, the grace of giving. Uh, About four weeks ago, a bunch of us headed out of town to go to our first ever men's retreat. It was located about 45 minutes northwest of here at Camp Shiloh, and uh, for, for those of us who live in um, this part of the country, it was absolutely over the river and through the woods. Um, it was the middle of nowhere, you know, and it's a, a gorgeous stretch of North Jersey. Um, on a Friday afternoon with uh, the sun setting, still warm, windows down, I looked around, and what struck me was how low the reservoir had fallen because of the summer drought. I think it's the Wanakew Reservoir. Uh, looking around, gorgeous hills and Um, all kinds of uh, trees and landscapes, but a lot of dirt where there should have been water. When the reservoir or your tub is empty, there's no risk that it's going to overflow. Every kid knows that. It needs filling up first. But that's not what the Apostle Paul says. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he says some things that fly in the face of that very elementary physics lesson about how to overflow a volume of water. In verse 2, he commends the Macedonian churches who were, quote, in the midst of a very severe trial, who were, verse 2, also uh, experiencing extreme poverty. Those were their circumstances. But what doesn't add up in those circumstances is that their response was welling up in rich generosity, verse 2. And then in verse 3, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. The the word um, overflowing joy and uh, extreme poverty welling up, it's the same word in the original Greek language that can be translated abundance, overflow, even surplus. How does a near-empty reservoir overflow? (laughs) How do the circumstances of extreme poverty and very severe trial overflow with any amount of surplus? The only explanation can come through the the reality behind the word that Paul uses repeatedly here in 2 Corinthians 8, which is the theme of 2 Corinthians 8, and that word is grace. Grace. Verse 1 is the summary statement, not just his introduction, it sets up everything that he's going to say at the beginning of this chapter. 
we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Down in verse 4, these believers urgently pleaded with us for the grace of sharing in this service. That's the word behind privilege. And sharing there is the same word we've found elsewhere, koinonia, that is often translated fellowship. This is at the heart of biblical community, one of our gospel foundations. Down in verses 6 and 7, Paul calls this giving pattern, this act of grace, um, and the grace of giving. And then Paul points um, not to guilt, not to a sense of duty or obligation, but to the heart of the gospel as the motivation for any radical generosity. Verse 9, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. His point here is grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Um, grace is undeserved favor. Grace is the reality behind us saying that uh, we have not earned or deserved any of the blessing of God, especially at the heart of salvation. God has done this on His own. We, we would turn to a passage like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Grace at the heart of salvation. But grace isn't just what God has done in us and what He continues to do for us. Grace is also what God desires to do through us. That's what we've been saying lies at the heart of biblical community, fellowship with God, this vertical relationship, sharing in new life, reveling in His love, receiving all of His gifts, but then very naturally taking what we've received vertically and extending it horizontally in fellowship, sharing, overflowing with gospel grace, uh, receiving what God gives and then giving it away with trust that we will not lack we will actually uh, further abound. We'll look at that um, phrase, uh, that word, that concept in a few minutes. This horizontal sharing involves love, service, prayer, and yes, financial giving. Here's Paul's argument. If Jesus became poor for you, though He was rich in majesty, power, glory, fame, so that you through His poverty might become rich in love, forgiveness, freedom, the status of belonging to the family of God through adoption, then how can God's people do anything less than give ourselves away? It's the motivation for any radical generosity, for any giving away of anything, looking at Jesus and the reality that He gave Himself away freely. Giving with radical generosity is not natural. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. But faith, in contrast, trusts that God, who owns all things, chapter 9, verse 8, is uh, able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. You know, giving out of excess, giving out of abundance with no change in lifestyle, with no crimping of standards of living, that's not difficult. 
there's no head-scratching going on. The, the math all adds up. Human wisdom stays in control, managing pieces of the pie so expertly that God gets his slice and nothing else in life is disrupted. But listen to what Jesus says when he sees a poor widow put two tiny coins into the temple treasury among the crowd doing the same thing. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. The math adds up. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Two copper coins, all she had. Two minus two equals zero. If you ran your household like that, the math doesn't add up. What am I going to eat for dinner? How am I going to pay my rent? How am I going to provide clothes for myself and my family? In her poverty, she outgave even the wealthy with their big donations because she drew on gospel grace, which isn't limited by math or management techniques, but rests on God's promise to provide, the grace of giving. Secondly, Paul moves to the goal of equality in 2 Corinthians 8. Look at verses 13 and 14. He mentions another generous giving principle. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. Last month, a friend of mine uh, shared with me this amazing but true story that is set in Nebraska in 1981. Herman and Donna Ostry uh, bought a, a home, a piece of property uh, outside of Bruno, Nebraska in 81, uh, and they came to learn that the barn on the property was always wet and muddy because a nearby creek would overflow anytime it rained significantly. They put up with this until 1988 when flooding rains resulted in 29 inches of standing water in their barn, and they decided to do something about it. Herman called a professional moving company to figure out if it was feasible to put the barn on higher ground on their property, and the answer was way too expensive. So at dinner one night with his family, he made this offhand comment, if we just had enough people, we could pick it up and move it to higher ground. Ha, ha, ha. Everybody laughed. But his son, Mike, was an engineer, and he spent the next few days counting every piece of wood in the barn, making calculations, and he figured out that the barn weighed 16,640 pounds. He started sketching out the design of a steel uh, uh, grid that could add stability to the structure and provide handholds for um, a lot of people that would add another 3,150 pounds and came up with this crazy idea that if they had 350 people holding on to the steel grid, each carrying about 56 pounds apiece, they could move the barn in theory. The town of Bruno, population 144 at the time, was having a centennial that summer in 1988, and so Herman and Mike went to the planning committee with this crazy idea to make a barn moving the centerpiece of the centennial celebration. And on July 30th, 1988, 344 people took their positions inside and all the way around the barn, while 4,000 people from 11 states showed up to watch. And Herman, getting on this portable PA system, um, 
gave instructions little by little, and these people, 344, lifted the barn off the ground, moved it 115 feet south to a spot that was six feet higher, turned the darn thing 90 degrees, and set it down on its new foundation, all in less than 20 minutes. Uh, if you look at the, uh, up the grainy video, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you, Google barn moving 1988, you'll find Herman, okay? Um, and, and it'll be uh, a entertainment for your afternoon with corny country music playing. But when you look at the video, you'll notice a bunch of old guys who probably should have gotten medical clearance from their doctor before they showed up to move a barn. The articles say that one guy was 90 years old. Another guy had a prosthetic limb. There were a bunch of little kids mixed in, as well as the buff farmhands who throw hay bales uh, you know, from their truck up into the barn all day long and should have been there. Uh, I'm no engineer, but my guess is that the steel grid equalized the effort. The steel grid um, smoothed out the difference between one guy and the next, one 90-year-old guy next to a buff 24-year-old. But folks... There's no steel grid in our vision campaign. There's no way to say, hey, everybody chip in a little bit and we'll get there. Some of you have plenty, as verse 14 puts it. You're financially buff. You can carry a lot of weight. Some of you are hard-pressed, as verse 13 puts it. You're not as able. But here's the principle of generous giving, as the Apostle Paul puts it. If the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. If every one of us picks up some weight according to each person's ability, we can do this crazy thing. We can make a new home for ourselves, and more significantly, we can make um, a gospel headquarters for the generations to come. Lastly, the harvest of righteousness, which moves us into chapter 9. One of the chores I uh, actually enjoy at home is working in the yard. And every September, especially after a hot, dry summer like we had, uh, I'm outside in the yard with uh, a couple of different kinds of rakes and a shovel, digging out dead patches of lawn and preparing the soil to uh, plant new grass seed. And I've learned over the years... um, that if I am cheap with the grass seed, I will have, I'll pay the price next summer. Because the more grass seed, the denser the turf, and the less room there will be for the weeds to invade when the lawn gets stressed the next summer. In chapter 9, verse 6, Paul shares a similar agricultural principle that his first century readers would absolutely have gotten very easily. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. First thing we got to talk about is the wrong way to interpret this. The wrong way to read chapter 9, verse 6 is to conclude that a prosperity gospel actually has some merit. Pastors and churches that'll tell you, sow a seed so God will meet your need. -uh. (laughs) Nuh-uh. That's not what Paul's saying here. They set up a direct cause and effect between your investment and material blessing that God will return to you if your blessing is sufficient. That's not the gospel. 
That's not a a proper application of generous giving in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is nothing less than a delusion that we can manipulate God with our bank accounts and our credit cards. But the right way to interpret chapter 9, verse 6 is not the swinging in the opposite extreme and throwing out the baby with the bathwater because we can't avoid the fact that uh, this generous giving principle is one of the key ways in which Paul wraps up this whole argument. He brings it to a conclusion. It's in the Bible. Sowing seed does not just involve finances. Sowing is sharing. It's overflowing with generosity of prayer and attention and service and gifts and hospitality. And Paul, Paul points to the harvest that is promised, not material possession, not abundance of stuff or money, but verse 10, the harvest of your righteousness. The new song uh, Katie said uh, the team was introducing to us this morning, I know I'm filled to be emptied again. The math doesn't add up. (laughs) Otherwise, we'd think, okay, God, God is playing games, filling me up only to take it away. No, 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 that's not the gospel. The gospel is filling you up so that you overflow with abundance. Think of a tank that you leave your hose in and you walk away. What happens? Is the tank empty because the the thing is overflowing? No, water's going everywhere. The tank's full the whole time. God fills us up only to, figuratively speaking, empty us. But abundance is always promised. We will never lack. The harvest of your righteousness is the promise as you sow seed. In order to understand what that really means, We need to walk back a couple of verses and look at verse 8 again to the promise that as you overflow in radical generosity, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in that job you've been dreaming about, that promotion. No. You will abound in that new vacation home that you've been dreaming about. No. You will abound in every good work. That's the harvest of your righteousness. God's blessing is that you'll be able to overflow even more with gospel grace. It'll come spilling out of everywhere. An increase of your harvest of righteousness means that you will become an even more effective instrument of God's salvation plan in the lives of others. You'll impact more lives. You'll be an agent of change. You will be a catalyst for spiritual growth. You may even be the person God uses to lead others to saving faith in Jesus Christ. You sow seeds. You will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. What do you mean, God? You will abound more and more in good work. You will be my spokesperson. You will represent Jesus. People will be drawn to me because of you. You'll speak, you'll demonstrate, you'll share, you'll be my hands and feet. All of that is God's promise of harvest. That's not the prosperity gospel. The true gospel says, sow seeds, radically share of whatever gifts God has given you, including this knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and overflow, and you will never lack abundance. Here's the question. And if you're thinking this, I don't blame you. I'm going to ask it for you. How can we say that investing in buying a building is an example of sowing generously so that we will enlarge our harvest of righteousness? Doesn't this investment detract from missions and outreach? Wouldn't all this money be better off spent on evangelism, 
on feeding the poor, um, on providing water and medicine to millions of people around the world who are dying of preventable diseases. All of those thoughts are wonderfully noble thoughts that, that have the motive of an other-centered, Christ-like compassion for the least and the lost, for, for the most vulnerable uh, uh, in our world. But here's why I am convinced that this is the kingdom investment that God is calling us to most strategically make during this season while not neglecting these incredibly urgent and important needs that still exist and always will until Jesus comes back. Jesus and the New Testament authors did not call for parachurch ministries and nonprofits and NGOs to be raised up to meet the needs of the least and the lost, to minister to the most vulnerable. They called for the church of Jesus Christ to be who she was designed to be. They called for the church redeemed by the blood of Jesus, filled with the Spirit of God, empowered to do His work. They called the church who, um, to, to act according to her design. And what happens at the end of history, in the, in the consummation of all God's salvation plans, on the very last pages of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, we find, in addition to the triune God, the bride, the church of Jesus Christ. She is... We are the epicenter of God's plans to bring redemption to this world, to bring healing and wholeness, and yes, to feed the poor and to clothe the naked and to minister to those without basic health care. And as the church grows, as she matures in depth, as she becomes more and more aligned with the perfect will of God, then the marvelous parachurch ministries we have the privilege of working alongside, will have all the funding and all the volunteers that they need to operate at full blast, and all the missions efforts uh, that flow out of our church and that we partner with around the world will be fully supported. And any giving of time and spiritual gifts and, yes, finances will be part of how God's people demonstrate Jesus to a world that needs to us to overflow with gospel grace. That is our hope, our dream, and join me in praying yet again that God will bring this to fruition. Lord, it is a marvelous privilege to be invited into your plan of salvation. It is a marvelous privilege to be called your bride, to call Jesus our bridegroom, to know that through faith in Him, we are promised, betrothed, and that at the end of history, the greatest celebration that has ever been will be the wedding feast of the Lamb. Until that day, Lord, strengthen us, purify us, use us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we're wrapping up the vision campaign this morning, and we have a, a few extra elements that we would ask your patience regarding. Uh, before we show a video, uh, I want to share um, some last thoughts here uh, during this year's vision campaign. Um, at the end of First Chronicles in the Old Testament, King David comes to realize that uh, God does not have in mind for King David to build the temple. The temple will be built by David's son Solomon. But David has an important role to play. 
and he understands that. And so um, at the end of First Chronicles uh, 29, David assembles the people and tells them how much he'll be com- committing of his own kingly resources to the project at hand. Um, why does he share that publicly? For a couple of reasons. One is to lead by example. He's establishing a pattern of sacrificial generosity. Second reason is that his act has a vertical worship dimension that uh, stimulates joy on the part of the people and prompts a generous response by all the leaders. Now, we would absolutely concede that the Scripture does not have in mind a local church's vision campaign. But we believe that the the, the principles laid out here provide us with a lot of biblical wisdom in our effort. And so early on in the 2014 Growing in Grace vision campaign, we, we said this 2016 version is not a new campaign. It's, a, it's really an extension of the original one. We're revisiting the same themes. Our, our vision, our foundations are the same. But early on in that 14 campaign, which we're extending through this year, our uh, leadership team decided with some advice from outside that it was wise um, for me to share what the Wong family would commit. And um, the thinking uh, specifically was, I can't stand here, whether in public or in smaller gatherings as we've had over this past month, and ask you to do anything that we are not willing to do ourselves as a, uh, a family. Um, Cedar and I prayed about it. We, we talked at length. We realized that we're called to lead by example. Um, and we realized as well that uh, what a unique window of opportunity God had brought to our church. What a perhaps a once-in-a-lifetime chance we have at being a part of building this new foundation for the future. And so in 2014, the Wong family prayerfully committed $50,000 to the vision um, campaign, which we're working hard by God's grace to fulfill by the end of 2017. That's a three-year uh, commitment um, window. And um, we will decide this week coming up, along with many of you, what our new commitment will be on top of that. It won't be able to be at that level. Uh, we stretched as hard as we could in 14. Um, the capacity that we have is not nearly as much this time around, but we're going to add to that for the following three years. And perhaps um, that matches some of your patterns. You stretched a lot, and this time you can't as much. Or perhaps the reverse is true. You didn't stretch as much. You weren't as convinced. And this time we need you to be that buff, young 24-year-old farmer to pull some wheat. Ken is going to interact with that idea in a little bit. Uh, but our prayer is that we see a repeat of responses from First Chronicles 29, worship and joy, and then widespread willing radical generosity in response to our King. We're going to show a video that many of you have seen, but many others weren't able to come to these meal events, and then Ken's going to share a few thoughts. <laughs> 